Hello and welcome to Accent of Woman. I'm Ayan Shirwa. Born Again Blackfella is about the extraordinary life of Uncle Jack Charles. The book was ghostwritten by Namilla Benson, a broadcasting veteran and a mentor to many of us in the community. Today on Accent of Woman, Namilla chats to us about ghostwriting, radio, and what it was like to work with Uncle Jack Charles. In the second half of the show, cultural historian Samia Kutin discusses the inspiration for her book, Australian Armour. Namilla opens the show with a story about how she got into radio. So how I got into radio, I actually come from a long line of radio broadcasters. So my dad uh, worked for 49 years over at the ABC and that's how my family migrated to Melbourne because dad was one of the pioneers that set up Pacific Services over at the ABC, um, which is now International Services. um, And it was known as Radio Australia. And I used to go into the studio with dad when I was like four, five, six and upwards. Um, And I do much the same now. History repeats itself. I do the same with my kids as well. Anytime I'm on air, whether it's at ABC or on community radio, I bring them in with me. And what's that like, Namila, having your babies in the studio watch you be the superstar broadcaster that you are? It's beautiful for me seeing my kids just being so comfortable within the radio space because that's where um, at a time when I didn't feel I was able to connect with a community where I kind of found my community. And so the thing is, uh, coming from a Pacific Islander background, I remember on trips back to PNG and we're from a very remote island called Rabaul, my grandfather was able to be very engaged with global um, discussions and topics and Mm. issues and the way that he was able to do that was through his connection with radio and I remember lots of family were also able to listen in to my dad when he used to broadcast so dad was very well known across the nation um, because his voice is quite distinct he's Mm. got the old school um, broadcaster's voice whereas now we're a lot more we're allowed to be a lot more conversational Mm. you know but there was a formality to the way that they used to speak and it's interesting looking at photos of dad because people used to get dressed up to the nines and I remember this dad every day used to wear a suit to go and do radio like it was treated as a real craft um and yeah there there was a beauty to that but I realized that uh the intimacy and the interaction um and the portability, I guess, of radio that my grandfather, who I call my bubble, my bubble would be sitting on woven mats in the village or any time that he would go to the gardens, he'd always have his little transistor radio. And that was his lifeline to the rest yeah. of the world. So Namila, how did your work with Uncle Jack Charles begin? So initially I was brought in as a ghostwriter. So yes. that's what the formal term is. Oh. But um Halfway through the process, uh, Penguin Random House, which is the publishing house for Uncle's book, Uncle Jack Charles's book, Born Again Blackfella, um, they decided to make me a co-writer. So as a ghostwriter, you don't, and you know that you don't, um, get recognition 
uh, in formal terms. Mm. But uh, yeah, midway through, they decided they would put my name on the book, which is a huge thrill and a real honour. But um, yeah, ghostwriter. A ghostwriter. Perfect. (laughs) The term that we started off with. Yeah, no, I love it. So, okay, so you're a ghostwriter for Mm. Uncle Charles, uh, Uncle Jack Charles' book. how did that come about? What was the what was the conversation like? Um, I had met Uncle and interviewed him through television. So when I used to do TV, I met Uncle back then and did a story which he quite liked, which went to air on a show that I was a co-presenter on called Art Nation. And it was on TV for like 20 years or something until, unfortunately, the ABC pulled the funding for arts shows and that was one of them that got the cut. But um, yeah, I guess I met Uncle then. He really enjoyed the interview and I saw him around from time to time. Mm. Um, And his manager invited me to just co-host and moderate some conversations. So the the main conversation that I started off with, because Uncle, um, a big thing for him, having been in and out of um, Australia's brutal uh, prison system 22 times, he wants to get back in there and just to work with Young Mob again. Uh, and so, yeah, there was the, the legal year kicked off um, for the legal industry. And so I got to interview Uncle Jack mm. and Uncle Archie. And I think it was a little bit of that thing um, of understanding the politics behind um you know, like just as an outsider, what it is to be Aboriginal mm. and, and seeing the struggles there, but sort of not able to negotiate co- difficult and tough conversations without being too heavily connected. Because I think sometimes that can be a brutal process yeah. as well. And it's something that Uncle thinks about um, a lot. But it's also something that I have wrestled with as well because I. Um, yeah, I don't know if you both feel this, but sometimes you don't want to take up space. But then it's hard as well when it's an elder that's mm. like, no, I have the expectation that you will turn up and you will sit there because I feel safe. Um, and I know that he also knows I can go places and say things um, which he wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable doing. And that was interesting in the writing process as well because um, I feel like I went quite hard <laughs> I was quite hardline with some of the things that I really wanted to get to the readers who will overwhelmingly be white people because they love uncle, you know, and they feel, they think that he's quite, and he is, he's a very jovial kind of character and um, very amiable as well and super engaging, but his life speaks directly. It's a direct reflection of the ongoing genocide Mm. that goes on in this country. So, um, Yeah, I mean, Uncle was able to tweak and edit uh, some of what I had written and we went through a really extensive editing process. There were seven stages of it that we did. But, yeah, it was, um, you know, we've just, I think... Uh, to answer your question in a very roundabout mm-hmm. way. Sorry, Ayan. No, Uncle and time. I just always got on really well and he felt safe with me mm-hmm. and he knows that, um, yeah, I am able and willing to sort of go hard places um, so that he's not carrying the load alone. Right. You know? Oh, that's yeah. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's really beautiful to have that level um, of trust with Uncle because his story – 
is so incredible and so unique, but ha- say, in saying that it's unique, it's also not that unusual. Like the, the amount of people who do not know about the stolen generation in this country mortifies me in, mm. um, when we're in public, at public events. And I'm constantly surprised at how many people who are of my vintage, like in their 40s and 50s, who are hearing Uncle's story and those like his for the first time. Like, what does that say about our education system and the erasure that is just so inherent and so institutionalised in terms of trying to reach the masses about the truth of this, you know? And Uncle's always saying that this country needs needs its own, you know, truth and reckoning to happen. Yeah. Like, there's, it's just because there's so much denial right, around right. it. And in the book, Uncle Uncle Jack Charles mentions that he's he's interested in writing a second book, but in that book he wants it to be more political. And really? I, I, yeah. So like he's still like there's a lot of fuel in that tank. So there really is. There's a heat. <laughs> I don't know if I can match the energy levels with that because, you know, that's the thing. Uncle's story is so heavy and so laden with. Um, just the the brutality of of Australian history and how this one policy really forevermore changed the trajectory of his life and things like, you know, um, I mean, the first time he was thrown in jail, which I never knew about, was because he went into Collingwood Fitzroy, like Mm. the, the 3CR stomping ground to go and reconnect with family. And for that, like, he was, yeah, picked up by the police his foster mum called it you know so just discovering things like that because we know from a distance what some of the stories are but with uncle um the intensity of sitting and I think as a ghost writer what was even more shocking was just how matter of fact uncle was about it Mm. so you know and it's not your place to really get too emotional um because on the one hand, you've got a job to do, but on the other, it's actually not your story to feel necessarily devastated about. But then, you know, especially as a mother and hearing about what uncle had gone through as a young child, it was just devastating and heartbreaking. Mm. Like it's just, um, there's so much. And, And really, like I spoke at length with uncle. I didn't go into too, I deliberately didn't go into too much, um, detail about uncle's abuse we decided not to name his abusers because as elders you know you want your legacy to be yours and I didn't want that to be Mm. a distraction. So Namila now you work for one of the top radio stations in Australia Um, do you feel that there's a responsibility to provide opportunities for women of colour? It's a difficult one because absolutely I think that totally goes without saying but there's a risk isn't there that uh in this push for so-called diversity and inclusivity that it can be quite tokenistic and I think as a consequence you know um sometimes the wrong people can get in and they don't want to stay at the end of their year-long internship and what have you but then You know, when you've got white structures, and I've gone in and out of the ABC now for about 15 or so years, but when it's overwhelmingly white structures kind of dictating what that inclusivity is, 
It's a really, really difficult one because mm. you are expected to play the role of the good black, you know, and that's something that um, you kind of have to do because at the end of the day, you've got bills to pay, I've got a family to support and that kind of stuff. But I feel quite muzzled at times in terms mm. of how I would like to approach stories. Thank you so much, Namilla Benson. Born Again Blackfella is out now in all good bookstores. You're listening to Accent of Woman on 3CR Community Radio. Samia Kutten is a cultural historian and her book, Australian Nama, looks at the South Asian odyssey in Australia. Samia shares the story behind the inspiration for this culturally significant book. Thank you all for coming out tonight and I can't tell you how much of a privilege it is to be on a panel such as this this is an extraordinary moment to be actually taking something that's been you know inside the academy or inside my head for a really long time and actually putting it back out into the community and into struggles and activism which is where the questions started that actually uh, started this book um so what i'm going to do is just give you a very brief kind of uh overall tale of what the book is what it's about for those of you who don't know i apologize to everyone who's been to a party with me in the last 10 years and heard this maybe like a million times i'm gonna start talking about new things after these launches are over but in essence about uh 10 years ago now in 2009 i noticed in an australian history book that there was a quran in one of these tiny little mosques that can be found throughout the Australian interior. Um, There's many of these mosques. Some of them are in very good condition. Some of them are in uh, not great condition. And I thought if I go out to Broken Hill and have a look at this Quran, I'll understand a little bit more about who built these uh, structures and their stories, etc. And at the time, I was doing a PhD on something completely different. I was doing a PhD on sex doctors in Australia or something, I can't even remember what it was. And I went out there and this mosque and the things in it are very well preserved because it's the desert and things don't, there's not very much humidity. And there was letters and children's shoes and little bottles of ator, which is, you know, scent that you put on. And you think little things from Delhi and people learning the Arabic script, you know, they, they were their exercise books. So in essence, anything that had been important to the people who built these mosques had ended up there when, when they died or when they left Australia. So amidst all these treasures I found this giant book this big which is what I'd come looking for and in English it said the holy Quran and you know I opened it up and it wasn't the Quran at all it was a 500 page book of Sufi poetry in Bengali which is my mother tongue I hadn't sort of engaged with this language for years and years. I left uh, Taka when I was seven years old, about to turn eight, and he was this book that had actually been written in 1861, and the edition I had found in Broken Hill was um, 1895. Now, more than 
eight different history books had mislabeled this text as a Quran. Uh, you can, if you reduce that from eight, there's actually four different authors who go and see it, you know, and the, the others are just citing the, the original mistake. But four separate people had turned up, seen it, and gone, it's a big book in a mosque, must be a Quran. Okay, and move on. Uh, but, you know, as I started reading it, um, it's a very, very, very old type of Bangla, so not, not the kind of spoken Bangla that I was used to speaking at home, but I could still understand what was going on and I started being able to see its imagery. And it turned upside down the story about the Muslims or the Afghans that are told in the history books. The story goes that the, the Afghans came with the camels. The camel industry was central to the colonisation of interior Australia. The camel men came from Afghanistan and what is now Pakistan. That's the the generic usual story. But a Sufi text that was very large in, in size and a very complex text that you don't, you don't sit there and read it quietly, you actually sing it, you perform it to groups of people, right? So in many ways, like the way that you have all gathered here, at some point in the 19th century, there was groups of people gathering in Broken Hill, actually listening to the tales in this book, which just turned upside down again, everything about um, the South Asians in interior Australia that I had heard, because why were they speaking Bengali? How, how on earth could they understand Bengali? Bengal is a delta. There isn't a camel industry. It's not a place that supports arid transportation. It's a riverine uh, geography. So how on earth does this book fit into the overarching tales about migration to Australia we'd, we'd um, been told? Anyway, so what happened was as I sunk deeper and deeper and deeper into the I'm going to say, you know, almost magical, uh, multi-layered metaphors of the poetry itself. I realized that I wasn't just reading Sufi poetry. I was actually reading a history book. So as a historian, used to a very different type of history, which is the Australian history book. This was a history book unlike anything I'd ever read before. And I became obsessed with this question of who on earth in the, you know, late 19th century could actually perform this because it's a very sophisticated, complex text. Who was performing it? So I kept going through archives in search for this person who could have understood the tales in this book. And what I found just blew me away. You know, I would be chasing someone and I'd almost pin them down to be the person who brought the book to Broken Hill. But before I pinned them down, I would find yet another non-English language text that had been ignored just like this Sufi book. So I found a 200-page Urdu manuscript. I found a 200-page Persian language sort of treatise about Ahmadiyya Muslims and dream interpretation uh, practices. I found Arabic um, marriage contracts between the South Asians and various other people, both white women and Aboriginal women. One of the things that absolutely blew me away was that I realised quite quickly that if you want to tell the story of these South Asians, the richest sources are actually in Aboriginal languages. So I found Arabana, Wankangaroo, Dirari, Diri, Kuyani stories about 
the South Asians, the Muslims, and these were just incredible. Because oral archives are so rich in Aboriginal communities in the interior in particular, where people haven't been pushed off their country in many cases, you know, people had... People were still seeing songs that they had heard back in the 19th century that were actually the sliding scales of Hindustani music. You know, I could recognise that you're singing an Urdu song. And it was largely because many of the South Asians uh, who came married into Aboriginal families. There was a very complicated, rich encounter amongst these groups of people at the margins of white Australia. So then before I knew it, I was writing a history book that used all these archives that just systematically get left out of Australian history books. So I ended up writing Australia Nama, which in English we would translate it to the Book of Australia. Um, and it's a history book that foregrounds non-English language sources and it says you can't just take these sources and archives and just insert them into the larger narrative of history that we already know. These sources actually completely challenge the overall narrative of how you would how you would talk about history because they what they do is they give you different forms of ways of talking about time and place, epistemology, philosophy. They give you different ways of thinking about what it means to be human. Um, so that, that's kind of been the last 10 years of my life <laughs> and it's now, yeah, it's now out and I'm just very, very, very excited to get this conversation started about what the book means for, you know, what, what kind of intervention it can make into uh, the public sphere, etc. So I think I'll leave it there. Samia Kutin's book, Australian Nama, is out now. Accent of Woman is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. We finish today's program with a song by Sampa the Great called By River.
I'm being advertised as your bubble see-through token black when mass fits all but mine is getting uncomfortable How do you navigate through all this? System addict, system antics, still keep smiling, stuck in traffic. Masking, itch face, I'm tired of asking. Bitch face, shy as fuck, I'm you on turf. My days are numbered on this earth. An ocean almost carried you down under. You're gonna have to find your tune down under. Shit really looks no white down under. How you supposed to bleed black down under? The puzzle piece, the match is fixed. The new wave has been here for years. The same two-step and the same blueprint. Old school meets bold school. Take over shit. Action no plan. Fan on fam. Now I am who I am. Uncomfortable. 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 